0: Good evening. It is a true joy for Steve and I to be here today, and we want to bring you greetings from Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto. I'm one of the elders there. Steve is one of the pastors there. He's the associate pastor there, and um, it was our church that allowed us to be here, or at least allowed Steve. He's on payroll there, so they allowed him to come here. And uh, we want to talk about healthy churches, what it means to be a healthy church, how Uh, Each one of us can hopefully have a healthy church, and I think as we talk about this, we have to admit that neither Steve nor I are experts in the field, Uh, but we do have a pastor, Paul Martin, who's senior pastor of the church, who's put a lot of emphasis on this and thought about it deeply, and has had the privilege of going into many different churches and just helping them think in biblical categories about being a church. And I think as Paul has influenced Steve and myself, we've, um, he's delegated a lot of that teaching to us over the years, and we've had a lot of neat opportunities to go to churches in um, different parts of Canada around the greater Toronto area too and to speak to people about what it means to be a healthy church. And then we also do weekenders at our church where um, pastors, elders from different churches are invited to come to spend a weekend with us, and you stay from typically Friday until Monday, Thursday till Monday, Sunday Friday to Sunday Um, and uh, you're just sort of invited into the life of the church and so you get to go to an elders meeting get to go to a members meeting get to go to our services get to see how we plan services and we're not saying we do all those things perfectly or exactly right but it is just a way of showing people how we do that and so if you are pastor or elder of a church you can ask for more information about that we'd love to have you come for one of those as well uh, over in Toronto. We want to talk about healthy churches. So let me just give you a little overview of where we're going to be going over the next couple days. I'm not sure how well you can see the slides, but we'll hope for the best. We want to start by talking about the foundation of a healthy church. We'll get onto that in just a couple of minutes. Then we want to talk about the authority within a local church. We'll advance from that into the membership of a local church. So talk about what it means to be a member of a church, what membership is, why it matters, why it's important. We'll talk about how to protect a local church, and then finally we'll focus in on issues of leadership within the local church. So out of the seven or eight different seminars we could have done, we thought these would be the ones that would be most fitting and uh, give you a broad overview of how to to start a church on a healthy footing or how to uh, steer an existing church, hopefully towards even greater health. And again, I think I I speak for Steve when I say it's very good for us to do these uh, as we do these seminars. We're always just thinking again about our own church and how all of these things, it's like they always want to steer away from health. And so you've got to be constantly shifting back, going back to the basics and steering your church back uh, to the way you you really believe it ought to be biblically. So we're going to start tonight with the church's foundation. What is the foundation... Of a healthy church, I should say we're going to do two sessions tonight and three tomorrow. So we'll do two this evening, and then we'll have some time of Q and A, and then we'll do three tomorrow as well as a time of Q and A. So lots of opportunity for you to ask questions. Healthy Church's foundation. Really, what we're asking is what what can we build a church upon? Of all the things a church could be, of all the things a church could do, which ones will we choose? How will we evaluate the things we've chosen to do as a church? Really, again, upon what foundation should we build our churches? And I want to posit to you that the healthy foundation of a church is the Word of God. The Word of God, the Bible, needs to be foundational. It needs to be central to all the church is and all the church does. Now, I know that sounds easy. That sounds obvious. Your children could probably come up with that answer but it's not as easy as you'd think because, again, there's all these forces that are on us uh, that are just directing us away from this. And if we're not constantly correcting, constantly reevaluating, we start to swerve from the Word to other things. Instead of being directed by the Bible, we can be directed by other things. So what defines a Word-centered church? I think maybe the, help, the, the, the easiest way or the most helpful way to see this is to actually turn it around and look at that first. So what is not a word-centered church, or a word-centered ministry? What's the opposite of what we're talking about here? And that can change a lot from age to age and context to context, but I think in North America, the 21st century, there's one major, major challenger to this. So if we're advocating here a word-centered ministry, at this time in this place, there's one major challenger Uh, And I wonder if you'd recognize it from its slogans. Uh, A lot of churches embrace this kind of model. And maybe about 20, 30 years ago, churches began to advertise themselves with slogans like this. This is not your grandparents' church. Or we're a church for people who don't like church. Or we love God, but we hate religion. None of those things necessarily evil, but those were slogans that were associated with a, a new kind of movement that swept over the church and I think really led churches, local churches, away from being founded on the Word of God and toward being founded on something else. And what they were trying to do with slogans like these is to separate themselves from traditional churches. Right? When you're saying this is not your grandparents' church, you're making a clear statement that that kind of church is, is no longer valid, no longer useful. We're, we've created a new kind of church for a new age. So what what kind of church stepped in with slogans like this? What kind of church what, what kind of movement displaced the um the, the traditional churches of days gone by? It was a church founded upon what we might call the attractional model. I don't think anybody actually called their church. We're an attractional church. Maybe they did. But I think this word aptly conveys what those churches were all about. And again, these were meant to contrast with traditional churches or fundamental or fundamentalist type churches. Attractional is essentially what they were. Uh, Attractional was like a grid. They laid over everything and evaluated their church through this model of the attractional church. Jared Wilson says attractional church or attractional ministry is a way of doing church ministry whose primary purpose is to make Christianity appealing. Let's think about that for a moment. A way of doing church ministry whose primary purpose is to make Christianity appealing. And so people who followed this model, they looked at churches, traditional churches, fundamentalist churches, Baptist churches, whatever it was, they looked at those sorts of churches and admitted those churches are unattractive to people who don't go to those churches. They're unattractive to the unchurched people. They're unattractive to unbelievers. But what they thought is, it's not necessary. Churches don't have to be unattractive to unbelievers. They don't have to be unattractive to unchurched people. Of course, in that, in that time period, they were realizing lots of people in America especially, but also in Canada, had been churched. You know, They'd grown up in churches. They'd gone to the local United Church or Anglican Church when they were young, And now that they were older, they had abandoned the churches. And churches were just hemorrhaging people. And they thought, why are people leaving the churches? They're leaving the churches because the churches are not attractive enough. Those churches have made themselves unattractive. But they don't need to be unattractive. So they said, it's actually our fault as Christians that we've let our churches become unattractive. So the attractional church means to address this problem by removing those things that make a church unattractive, right? What makes a church unappealing? We need to get rid of those things and replace it with things that will make this church appealing to other people. And I want to focus on that, but first we need to address one of the the foundational assumptions of this whole model, and it was this, that a bigger church is necessarily a better church. It was founded on this idea that a, a church must always be growing. That if a church is growing, it's proof that it's a healthy church. That might sound a little like a business principle, right? And that's because it essentially is a principle drawn from the world of business and integrated into the church. And in in the business world, a public company, it needs to keep growing, right? It needs to show growth year after year. Uh, That way it'll be attractive to investors. They'll invest their money in the company. The company will be able to keep growing, And in many ways, this attractional model of ministry is what happens when your church is operated like a business. And so it was taking business principles, importing them into the church, and starting to evaluate the church as if it was a business. And what it did is it equated growth with health. Of course, if you say growth equals health, you'll also have to say that A lack of growth or a decline in growth is necessary proof of a lack of health, right? If your church is declining, it means it's unhealthy. Healthy church is growing church. Declining church is unhealthy church. That's that's the the model they worked up. So they wanted their churches to grow and grow and grow and, and to show growth as proof of their health. And then an interesting extension of that is that the churches that grow the fastest must also be the churches that are healthiest, right? And so they would start to look to the people and they they had these magazines that were rating churches on the fastest growing churches in America, fastest growing churches in the world. And those were the people who were then given the pulpits or given the book deals or given the conference spots so they could share their model with others, as if the, the, the speed at which their churches were growing was necessary proof that they were doing ministry right, that they were uh, leading their churches well. And so the church growth movement grew up. And if you've heard names names like Rick Warren or Bill Hybels, they were really the gurus of this movement. And they started to launch whole conferences, mega conferences, tens of thousands of pastors sometimes coming to these conferences and joining into their networks. And there's this whole huge emphasis on methodology. At one point, uh, Rick Warren went so far as to say, if you would buy his program and implement it in your church for 12 weeks, essentially he'd say, give me your church for 12 weeks, then I will give it back to you. I guarantee it will be healthier. By which he meant it will be a bigger church. And so there's this huge emphasis on methodology. If you just do the right things, if you just follow the right program, We guarantee your church will grow, therefore you'll prove that your church is healthy. Something really, I mean, we really should see it as shocking, I think, that somebody would make a claim like that, that if we give you our church, you will make it better, you will make it stronger, and then give it back to us. All we need to do is follow your program. I mean, that's the kind of thing we want to believe, right? That's that's the kind of thing that sounds so good. You're a pastor, you're struggling, your church just isn't growing the way you want it to, or it's it's stagnant in its growth. Doesn't it sound great that some guy would come along and say, just follow my program. I guarantee you, your church will grow. You just buy my program or buy into my program, and I guarantee results. Big problem is, what if growth and health aren't actually necessarily correlated, right? What if there's a difference between a growing church and a healthy church? Or what if growth doesn't necessarily prove health? And we'll talk about that more in a little bit, but of course that's exactly what was eventually shown. So the attractional model of doing church, and again, I, I'm focusing on this because I think this is this is human nature. If you just if you drift from the word, especially thinking like North Americans in the 21st century, if you drift from a focus on the word, you'll just straight to this, to this attractional model of ministry. It's it's our You know, if you just let your steering wheel go in your car, it's going to go to straight. I think the straight for us is right to this attractional model. We've got to work hard to to fight away from it. The attractional philosophy of ministry is essentially the, the melding and the baptizing of two different philosophies, consumerism and pragmatism. And both of them are drawn from outside the church. They were imported into the church from the world of business. And both of them are conspicuously absent from the bible let's take a look quickly at each one so you understand what i'm talking about here consumerism is treating unchurched people as potential customers who need to be, who need to be persuaded of the value of the church's product and an interesting little addition to that is once you're thinking that way you start to treat other churches as competition So consumerism is treating unchurched people or unbelieving people as potential customers who you need to persuade of the value of the product that the church is offering them. This really changes the biblical dynamic, and and it makes churches basically businesses that are vying for the attention of customers. So you consider any, any business selling any product, right? And times change. Your customers' desires change over time. So what do you do as a business? You change your product, right? The customer no longer wants that product; they want this one. You'll go out of business if you don't give them the new product they want. And so you just change your products. So you give the customer what they want. It doesn't really matter to you as a store owner because as long as you're making a profit, it's okay. If uh, if you own a store, people aren't interested in buying what you're selling. You get rid of those things. You start selling something new, right? No harm, no foul. So in the church, as this philosophy migrated into the church, churches began to ask people, either explicitly or implicitly, what do unchurched people want in a church? What do unbelievers want in a church? What do we have to give them in order for them to want to come to this church? Not surprisingly, they learned that for churches to be attractive to consumers, churches to be attractive to unbelievers, they would need to remove some things and they need to add in some other things. So what would they need to remove? Well, one thing that would need to go is extended prayers, unbelievers, right? We're trying to woo unbelievers into our church so we can show growth, so we can prove that we're a healthy church we want those unbelievers into our church, the one thing they don't want is extended prayers. Right? No unbeliever wants to sit there and hear you talk to God for five or ten minutes and really plead with God on behalf of the congregation. So if you're going to do prayers, keep them really short and probably make them prayers of response after a sermon. Right? Like a, a response to the sermon, but nothing other than that. Scripture reading. Again, unbelievers don't want to sit around and hear you read a, a chapter or two chapters out of micah or out of ephesians right keep it short maybe a verse at a time no more than that traditional hymns they've got to go right nobody wants to sing their grandparents hymns. this is not your grandparents church right so you can't be singing your grandparents hymns so we're going to have to come up with some new songs and some some songs that show modern music not traditional stuff expository preaching so just looking to the bible and drawing that just making sure that the point of your sermon matches the point of that scripture text right expositional or expository preaching. can't have that. No no unbeliever is coming in and thinking I really want to know what the Bible says so I can live it out. Right? You're not going to do that kind of preaching. You're going to have to get rid of that as well. And of course, the last thing an unbeliever wants in a church is to hear about sin or judgment or hell or things like that. So you've got to get rid of that as well. So all of these sorts of elements started to disappear from these churches that were in this consumerist mindset. I went to one of the most mega of the mega churches, one of the leading churches of the church growth movement, they had no prayer, no Scripture reading, no hymns. Um, the preaching was really, the, the point of the sermon was revealing your feeling as the beginning of healing, which is super catchy because I remember it about eight years later, but it wasn't what the Scripture said. It wasn't what the Bible said. And there's certainly no talk of sin, judgment, or hell. So they took out all these elements that had been part of Christian worship and got rid of them. They didn't do that because they were persuaded by the Bible that they ought to get rid of those. They got rid of them because they were persuaded by unbelievers that they ought to get rid of those things. What did they add in? Well, there's, there's other things they wanted to get rid of, which is almost satanic. I mean, it is satanic. They wanted to get rid of senior citizens right? They wanted their churches to be cool and hip, and the last thing you could have is elderly people. It's not your grandparents' church, right? So of course you can't have grandparents there. So they didn't ask them to leave, but they just cranked up the music, and they changed the style of worship, and they made elderly people feel uncomfortable. Uh, special needs people. If you're trying to make your church look really attractive, you probably don't want to have people with special needs, you know, someone showing obvious signs of Uh, some sort of disability. And so there were churches where those people were not allowed, people who were obviously disabled in some way, were not allowed to be shown at the front of the room or something like that, like keep the cameras off of them. We don't want to portray that kind of image. Um, Poor poor people, you know, these churches all began in upper-middle-class neighborhoods because they wanted successful people. They wouldn't go to the poor neighborhoods where they, they deem unsuccessful people lived So there's something really, really evil about at least the the farthest outworkings of this philosophy. So these are things they took away from church. What did they add in as they went and talked to the consumer, the unbeliever, and said, what would it take to get you into church? What are the kinds of things you would value in a church? Well, community is important. Now, careful. It can't be a diverse community, right? Because that makes us uncomfortable. I don't want to be around, if I'm wealthy, I don't want to be around poor people. If I'm poor, I don't want to be around wealthy people. That's uncomfortable. So make a church that's really people like me and then give me a sense of community. And um, I I went to one of these churches for a time and they would have invitation-only small groups where the wealthy people would have their own group just for other, other wealthy and successful people. They wanted community, but they wanted it to just look like them so they could be comfortable in it. Amenities. They wanted amenities. Give me a coffee shop. Give me a gym. Give me something else in the church. Give me yoga classes. Give me really great programs for my kids, right? So churches suddenly started having all these extras, not just a place you'd go to worship and, and go to spend time with people, um, but drop-in centers and places that would be open through the week with all these great amenities. Self-help, right? I don't want to know what the Bible says per se, I just want to know how to fix my life. My my marriage is a mess. My kids are disobedient. My, my job's not going well. Give me the help I need. That's what unbelievers want, right? They essentially want a, a pep talk to help them get their lives on track. Comfort is what people wanted. They wanted to live an easy life, a comfortable life. And then fun or entertainment, right? Don't take this too seriously. I don't want to come to church and And really have to think hard or really work hard. And I don't want to have to really dive deep into Scripture. Just help me have fun and be entertained. Because that's why you go on YouTube now, you'll see these mega, mega churches. And the sermons will be a joke. They'll be just full of fun. They'll have props. They'll have basketball courts set up on the stage. That kind of stuff. It's meant to entertain people, to give them little nuggets of truth, but in a very entertaining package. So, The consumerist mindset treated unbelievers as customers the church had to woo, had to draw in. We knew we couldn't do that through telling people they were sinful and falling under God's judgment and had to be saved from their sin. So instead, they took away those things that would be offensive and they added in things that would make unbelievers feel comfortable coming into the church and make them feel affirmed coming into church. But it wasn't quite that simple. Maybe it was hard to justify doing all of that. You know, it, we, we want this place to be comfortable, but surely the Bible is, is warning us that some of these elements are precious, and church history is telling us some of these things have been done for a long time. There must be some good in them. And this is where the second philosophy comes in, which is pragmatism. Pragmatism says that the end justifies the means. You can excuse any method at all as long as you get the result you want. Again, the attractional model is consumerism plus pragmatism. Treating unchurched people like customers, consumerism plus pragmatism, which is essentially saying that the worth of something, if anything, is determined by practical consequences. In other words, we know something is good if it gets us the result we want. We know something is bad or useless if it does not get us the result we want. Again, this makes a ton of sense in the the world of industry, right? If you're creating something, you're creating a a widget and you want it to be cheaper than before, then every part in the process, the manufacturing process, every part in gathering the the materials to make it, you're going to, um, anything that's going to take away from that goal of making it cheaper is going to be rejected. That's why we enjoy such cheap stuff in the world today, right? Because the, Pragmatism has gone into the industry, said here's the goal we want. Anything that helps us toward that goal is good. Um, Efficiency is really valued. And that's fine when it comes to making cheap phones and cheap cars and stuff like that. But in the church, in the church it didn't work so well. Here's how Rick Warren summarized it. He said, never criticize what God is blessing. It's so an interesting quote. Never criticize what God is blessing. It sounds sounds great. Like, Why would I criticize what God is blessing, right? If God's blessing something in my life or in my church, I'm not going to criticize that thing. But how do we know that God is blessing something? Well, according to this model, it's because it's giving us what we want. We set a goal, which is growth, always growth. We want our church to be bigger. That's our goal. Never criticize what God is blessing. So never criticize anything that's making our church bigger. Never criticize any method that's drawing people into our church. That is what we've determined is the objectively good thing. The thing we want more than any other is to have our church grow. So we won't criticize anything at all that draws people in. We will assume they're good because of the result they're bringing about. God wants us to have big churches, that foundational assumption. He wants us to do anything at all in order to achieve that goal, and we can't criticize anything that's helping us get to that goal because it's, it's proof of God's favor. It's cru- proof of God's hand of blessing upon it. Who wants to be the person who's criticizing or going against what God is approving, right? So consumerism gave churches the way of looking at church as a place to meet the perceived needs of unbelieving people or unchurched people. And pragmatism kind of gave us the justification for actually doing that, right? It justified our desire to make our churches attractive because it would meet that goal we had determined as the highest goal of a church is to reach as many people as possible. Consumerism said, let's find out what they want. Pragmatism said, that is the right and the good thing to do, to give them what they want so the church can grow. And so you had this fascinating thing that was happening in the earlier years of the the church growth movement the attractional movement which is churches were essentially doing market research you can read some of those books and see that uh, people be going door to door in neighborhoods and saying what would it take to get you into our church why do you not go to church and what can we do as a church to to attract you to draw you in and then they would do those things right what needs do you have that our church can address How can we make our church comfortable enough for you to walk through those doors and settle in as part of it? And so there's all this market research going on that, again, sounds a whole lot like the world of business, asking people what they want, and then churches changing what they do in order to deliver it. Now, there's a great irony here, right? Irony, a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result, pragmatism did not work. It was a found. It was a philosophy founded on the idea of whatever works is good. But itself, it did not work. There was not a great harvest of souls through this attractional church movement. Um, a lot of the churches that grew big, they did it just by gutting the small churches. Right? I don't know if you if you saw that um, in that time period, but in our church, in our area. There were lots of small churches that were destroyed. A few big churches grew. They weren't drawing in unbelievers and seeing them come to faith. They were just drawing people from all those small churches as they added coffee shops, as they added gyms, as their music got more exciting, as their light shows and all that, as their seats got more comfortable. People would just leave those older churches and go to the big ones. So, yeah, they were showing growth, but they were just drawing in, they were just stealing sheep, right, from all the other churches in the neighborhood. Is it really a benefit to toronto if one church grows big and ten other churches shut down so this movement found that it was really really good at getting people in the front door of the church even though most of those would be from from other churches already churched people it was really good at getting people to make some kind of basic profession of faith but it was really really poor at teaching and training them how to be christians And so so many people who came in and truly got saved, truly came to Christ, would later leave to go where they would be discipled, to go where they would find meat, right? They were were Christians. They were hungry for the meat of the gospel, the meat of the word, so they would leave. Uh, Other people would come in and, and just drift away again. Why would they do that? Why would people come in for a time and then leave? Because what you win them with is what you win them to. If you've drawn people into your church by entertaining them, right, by giving them what they need, then as soon as there's something else that's more entertaining or as soon as their needs change, they'll just move on to another church. right? You've persuaded people to go where they're happiest. Our church will make you happiest, so you come in here. But when there's another church that will make them happier, they'll just bounce away from yours and go to theirs instead. So, people had all the loyalty to their church and all the connection to their church as you do to Coke or Pepsi. You know, like who really cares? At the end of the day, if the restaurant has one or the other, you don't care. You just, you just drink whichever one is there. And a lot of people came into churches and they were entertained into the church. As soon as there was a better offer from another company, another church, they would go there. They were essentially just consumers. They had no loyalty, they had no deep desire to connect to that church and be part of that church. And as I said, really the movement was shown to be shuffling sheep, right? Just moving people who had already professed faith in Christ or already had some kind of church background, drawing them in from one church into another church and then just spreading them around again and again. So those are some of the problems. But theologically, there were two, at least two very, very big problems with the attractional model. And this is where I've been been gunning to. Again, this model is very... Very, very attractive. And I really think this is the one we, we aim at unless we're deliberately steering toward the opposite, unless we're deliberately steering toward this word-centered model. So I've been putting a lot of emphasis on it. I think it's really, really important that we, we understand our attraction to the attractional model and our attraction to just judging everything by numbers, right? That assuming that a church that is healthy must be a church that's growing, And a church that's growing must be healthier than the church that's growing slower. So one major, major problem with this attractional model was that it was premised on law instead of gospel. It was intrinsically legalistic. Now there's a big irony here, right? It was drawing people out of fundamentalist churches. It was drawing people out of their grandparents' churches, right? Which were associated with legalities, with doing, with um essentially proving your your love for the lord through the through your conformity to these external laws but this this whole model of church was legalistic because it was premised on giving people what they wanted without giving them the gospel it promised the results of the christian faith but without the power of the christian faith right it shelved the gospel And what it really did was focus on how Christianity could make you happy, how it could make you healthy, how it could make you feel good. So it pulled people out of those old legalistic churches and just gave them this new form of legalism. Follow these five simple rules and you'll have a healthy family. Here are four keys to a good life or eight keys to a happy marriage, those sorts of things. right? Those were the the sermon series that that were and still are so popular. And yet what it didn't do was ground all of this in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It didn't first ensure that people had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and it wasn't continually pointing them back to the Gospel, saying the Gospel is the power. The Gospel is the power. So what what you're called to do is premise on what's already been done in Jesus Christ. It skipped all that and just went to do this. Do this, do this other thing, and then you'll be happy, then you'll be successful. So it's doing without what's been done. It's calling people to act without resting in the gospel. So it's like giving someone a, a sports car with no engine, right, or power tools with no batteries. It's just It's utter futility to tell people what they can do to live a better life without first grounding them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was one major, major problem with the movement. And, and again, if you go and you listen even now to some of the sermons from these churches, you'll see that. They're not grounding all of this in the gospel. It's just law. It's just telling people what they must do in order to be happy. The second major problem is that it was essentially and is essentially man-centered instead of God-centered. The heart of the attractional church is not what does God want from man, but what does man want from God? Right? It's not what does God require of us, it's what do we require from God in order to be happy, in order to come into one of these churches. When you think about it, there's something, I mean you think about this in a through a well trained Christian mind. There is something absolutely nuts about asking unbelievers what they want from a church, right? It's just it's insanity. If you understand Christian doctrine, you understand that these these unbelievers in the neighborhood, they're not they're not genuine spiritual seekers who are just waiting for the right combination of factors so they'll go into a church, right? These are people who are in rebellion against God. These are people who hate God. They've rebelled against him. They've defied him. They 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 despise God. And now you're asking them what would it take you to come to church, they don't know what they need. They need to be told what they need. right? That's what we do and we declare the gospel. We go to people and say, here's what you need. I know you don't believe this. I know you don't think you need this, but I'm telling you, this is what you need more than anything else in the world. You need to repent of your sins and turn to Christ Jesus. The last thing you want to do is go and ask them what you need. By definition, they cannot know. They will not know. It'd be like going to North Korea and asking them what they want America to be. Right? It's, it's irrelevant, it would make no sense if, if, if they get to decide what America will be it will destroy America and if you ask unbelievers what do you want our church to be they'll destroy your church because they're in rebellion against God so this philosophy, this attractional church model was centered upon humanity instead of centered upon God centered upon the desires of sinful people instead of founded upon the word of God So when it comes down to the foundation of a healthy church, we're asking what can a church do? Of all the things a church could do, which ones should it do? And how should it evaluate these things? We're really talking about the matters of methods and metrics. What will we do? How will we evaluate these things? Of all the things our church could do, there's so many things any church can do, which ones will we actually attempt to do? And then how will we evaluate if we're doing these things well, if we're doing them properly? That's methods and metrics. So the attractional church model it essentially uses the methods and metrics of the world to determine what to do in our churches. It's worldly thinking that seeks the input of worldly people and not surprisingly creates worldly churches. So, Tractional uses the methods and metrics of the world to determine what to do in our churches. Word centered churches use the methods and metrics of the Bible to determine what to do in our churches. Goes to the Word of God, which is objective and true, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear. Goes to the Word of God. It says, according to the Word of God, what are the methods? And what are the metrics we should use? It just seems so obvious, right? When it comes to what we do in churches and how we measure the success of those things, why would we turn to unbelievers when we could turn to the Word of God? What does God say? And it's interesting. If you go to something like the Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, it teaches, and it just nicely summarizes Christian doctrine here, um, what do the Scriptures principally teach? Right. What's the point of the Bible? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. It's a summary of what the Bible is, what the Bible does in the life of the Christian. It teaches us what we're to believe about God and teaches us how to, how to live that out, Right. what duty God requires of us. So the Bible is sufficient. We've got to believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, that it really does guide us into all truth, that when we have big questions like what should our church do or how do we know if our church is doing these things well, we would turn to that Word and trust that God means to guide us. If the local church means anything to God, and means a lot. Surely He's given us in His Word what we need to know what to do and how to do it and how to measure it. If God knows better than even us, people indwelled by the Holy Spirit really wanting to do what's right and the Word knows even better than us and how much better does the word know than people who are not indwelled by the holy spirit right all scripture breathed out by god profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training and righteousness that the man of god or the church of god may be complete equipped for every good work so the word guides us into all that god requires of of us and then there's this the foolishness of god is wiser than men And the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's ways don't always make sense to us, right? Like, When you think about it, God uses weird, odd, foolish things. At least that's how they appear to us. And Yet God insists that these things are wise. That the things we come up with are weak. The things He mandates are strong. The things we come up with are foolish. The things He comes up with are wise. The very last thing we we want to do is take away the power of God in order to reach people for God. right? Like, How could that ever be effective? Why would we ever do that? Take away the Gospel. Take away the power of God in order to draw people in for God. Of course it doesn't work that way. It's nuts. To remove the Bible and downplay the Gospel is to to empty the church of the one thing it has that's got the power to really, truly transform people. There's an important distinction I think we need to make as we think through issues related to the church, and it's the distinction between revelation, prudence, and and preference. So we obey what God has revealed to us, right? That is the key. What God has revealed we must do. We always do. Always look to God's Word. What has God revealed to us? And after that, we start to think about matters of prudence, right? Right? Because not everything is perfectly clear. God doesn't tell us whether our churches should meet at 9 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning, right? He tells us our churches must meet. He's revealed that to us. But there's these matters of prudence. What would be a prudent time to meet? What would be prudent songs to sing? What would be a prudent length for a sermon? Things like that. And then there's just these matters of preferences that come last of all, right? What do we want to do? What's our preference in this matter? We have to be so careful we don't mix these up. We don't get these out of order. There's a lot of churches that are essentially just run by preference. right? They're not looking anymore to the Word of God and saying, what does God's Word say? They're just saying, what do we want to do? What's our preference? Preference really, if we're not careful, constantly steering back again to what God has revealed will always drift back to um, being attractional, trying to draw people in, being obsessed with numbers, and then just to the matters of preference. We'll just do what we want to do. It feels good. It feels right. It feels comfortable. Let me give you just a couple case studies. We're close to wrapping up here, but let's just think through how some of these things might actually work out in the life of a church. So let's say a new pastor is coming into a church and he wants to, to revamp the music program, right? Or they've asked him, we want you to take on a responsibility for for our singing in church our whole music program how might you think that through if you're thinking through the attractional model right so that's your grid it's that attractional model how would you think about music well first you'd want your music to be attractive to unbelievers right you know that music was one of the way churches try to draw people in so we need a great band We need a fun or a a hip or something. Worship leader, one who would play well in a community. Got to make sure the music doesn't make people feel awkward, right? There's something like, if you've been in churches a long time, you're used to this thing about standing up and singing songs together. That's weird in the wider culture. And so you need to, to make sure people don't feel awkward, feel odd standing up to sing. And the best way to do that is to make sure they can't hear themselves, right? So they're not standing out in a crowd. So what you do is you crank the music. Uh, you make it very loud so I can sing, but I don't have to feel like anybody can hear me sing. Get rid of that that awkward factor. Also, the music needs to be relevant. It can't be those old hymns that associates people with their grandparents and all the judgment of of days gone by. So uh, we got to sing new songs rather than old ones. And it's also important to have a setting that feels familiar to people. We want them to come in. We want them to feel comfortable. Um, so let's make it feel like a a a rock concert more than a church service, right? It's not your grandparents' church, this, so it can't be people in suits singing hymns. Let's turn down the lights, get get some nice lights up front, get a good band, make people feel like they've gone to a a concert or something so they can feel comfortable. So that's the kind of attractional way you would think this through. And lo and behold, there's a lot of churches today that that's essentially the way they do it. You could go around my town of Oakville and find a bunch of churches that this is the way they run it. They've got great bands. They play great music. They've got a good worship leader with a great voice. They put lots of money into the production of their services. They've got great light shows. They've got amazing screens all over the place. They've they've really tried to make people feel like this is a familiar, concert-like environment. You can just go in like you go into a concert. You can sing or not sing, stand or not stand. Just feel comfortable in there. What if you're thinking this through through a word-centered kind of grid. You're just asking, what does the Bible say about this? How, how would God want us to worship? Well, you know first that God commands us to sing, right? There's lots of commands in Scripture where God is telling His people to sing. Singing is clearly important to God. Uh, you, you go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and see singing is a way not just that the band does something for us, but singing is a way that we serve one another, right? Singing falls under those one another commands where every Christian is responsible to every other Christian for it. So it's not just a band singing to the people. It's actually us singing to one another, encouraging, building up one another through our singing. So we've got to make sure that somehow we're all singing together. There's some congregational dynamic to this singing. Um, We'd want to think about the fact that We know God really cares about the heart. God cares about the words that are coming out of our mouths as an expression of what's going on in our hearts. And he cares for that a whole lot more than he cares about instruments, right? One of them is just uh, an instrument. The other is a human voice that's singing out to God. And so we want our voices to be more prominent than our instruments, right? So maybe instead of thinking the band is there to play in order to lead the worship, we'd say the band is there to facilitate the singing. Right, the job of a, a lead worshiper or the job of the instruments is to help the singer sing, to help the congregation carry out this ministry of singing to one another, joining their voices together so they mutually encourage one another, right? That that one another dimension of singing, as we sing to God, we're singing for the benefit of one another. Um, we'd also want to make sure we're serving everyone in the church. And so if we've got young people and older people in the church maybe we're singing some songs. we're making sure we're not getting rid of all the old songs that will appeal to those older folk we're going to keep those songs in to serve those people whom we love and who are welcome and gladly part of this community we're dependent upon them for their wisdom we love those people we're not sliding them out we're, we're drawing them in uh, there's one church in my area that um, has a this old gentleman he's i think he's 102 years old and every Sunday they end with the doxology, and he leads it. Now, he does not have much of a voice left. He is not even a great singer, but they've been doing this for years, and they're just going to let him ride this until the Lord takes him. But there's something so endearingly sweet about this man getting up to lead the, the doxology for the 70th year or something. He's been doing it. They're unashamed, unembarrassed to put this man up front to lead them in singing to God. That honors him. But that would not happen in so many churches today because that would be embarrassing. That would be unattractive, unappealing. So you see the difference? One of them is just saying, what will get to make unbelievers feel okay here? The other is saying, what can we do to honor God? What does God's Word say we must do? And even if it feels unattractive, even if it feels unappealing, we're just going to go with, God said it, so we're going to do it right we're not trying to make our churches deliberately unattractive right we're not trying to make our churches gross or hard to to enjoy anything like that but we're just saying if god says these things we will do these things god knows better than we do just briefly another case study might be something like preaching right and a lot of churches have this where you're preaching verse by verse through the bible you're you're going through the book of ephesians and you know you're Maybe chapter four, chapter five, you've been going at it for a while. And, um, there's another church across town where he's just doing these zippy series, eight parts on the family, and then eight sermons on parenting, and eight sermons on money. And, and people from your church are starting to, to enjoy that. You know, you're starting to see people leave your church and go to his church instead. And they're, they're talking about how practical the preaching is and how it's making a difference in their lives. And so there's this massive pressure on you suddenly to say, am I going to change? Am I going to do what he's doing? Because that seems to be working, right? His church is growing. Mine is is not growing. In fact, it may even be declining. So should I see this as a sign that I need to change what I'm, what I'm doing? So do you change? Well, you go to Scripture and you see all Scripture is breathed out by God, right? Like we said before, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. Or Paul, when he spoke to the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. How many churches in my neighborhood, people could have gone there for 40 years and would never have, you'd never be able to say you've heard the whole counsel of God. Right? You've heard verses, isolated verses, pointing you toward living a successful life, but you don't know. The word of god you've not been taught the whole counsel of god or jesus himself right he taught truth and what happened people abandoned him jesus he didn't see that as a sign of his own failure he didn't say i need to change my message no he gave people what they needed not what they wanted even when people then abandoned him so it's not that there's no place for topical preaching there's Time and places to preach a series on on healthy families or something that's absolutely fine, but what our people really, really need? What people in churches need is the Word of God, right? We've got to believe that we serve them best by giving them the Word of God. When it comes as matter of preaching, they don't just need the the end result, right? They don't just need to be told how to live a prosperous life. They need to be told of their desperate need of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and whatever life they lead has to be based on the gospel, use the power of the gospel, drawn out of the gospel, right? Instead of just giving them that end result as if they can live a God-honoring life without the power of the Christian life, which is the gospel. So, people are leaving your church according to the attractional metric. That means you're doing something wrong, so you need to change, right? If growth, If growth means health, then decline means lack of health. So, Change your model. Start preaching differently. If you're going by the word-centered metric, you're saying, God calls me to preach the word. I want my preaching to be as attractive as possible. right? I'm not being boring just to, be, just to be obnoxious. And I want it to be applicable to people's lives. It's not true preaching unless there's application, right? unless people can take those truths and live them out. But I will not stop preaching the word. I will not go to those, that kind of preaching where I'm just throwing in the occasional verse out of context, just to make me feel like I've actually preached here. I'm gonna preach the word of God. I'm gonna focus on preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse. I'm just gonna keep doing that till the Lord returns and trust that this is the means through which He really builds His people. He calls unbelievers to Himself. He genuinely saves them and He causes them to live upright lives in Christ Jesus. So if we're not gonna use numbers We're not going to let ourselves go associate necessarily numbers and health. What are better metrics? How could we say, I know my people, I know this is a healthy church, right? It may not be growing. We might have had 100 people at the church last year and 100 people at the church this year. How could I know that my church is a healthy church? We'll borrow some Jonathan Edwards here. My people would have a a love for Jesus, a genuine love for Jesus and a growing love for Jesus whether there's more of them this year than last year or fewer than last year, if I see my people have a love for the Lord Jesus Christ and a growing love, not just feelings, but they're acting out love toward Him by love for one another, I'll know my church is healthy. Or if there's a spirit of repentance. right? I see people repenting of their sin, coming alive to righteousness. I see them repenting before one another, seeking people's forgiveness. I see relationships being bound back up when there's been some sort of discord. I see that spirit of repentance in my church. That is a healthy church, whether there's more of them or less of them. I see a devotion to the Bible. These people love God's Word. They're deep in God's Word. Day by day, they're reading the Word. They're reading it as families. They're reading it when they just get together as friends. They're coming here with their Bibles open to hear me preach. Then that devotion to the Bible tells me these are this is a healthy church. They've got an interest in doctrine, right? Interest in theology. They know theology is a knowledge of God Himself. If you've got no interest in theology, you've probably got no interest in God, right? doesn't mean you have to have a systematic theology open for you every day, but if you're not at all interested in growing in doctrine, that means you're not interested in growing in your knowledge of God and His works and His ways. So I would expect in a healthy church, people want doctrine. They're not saying things like doctrine is divisive, right? They know that, that doctrine matters, that we're called to protect the gospel. And then they have a growing love for God and neighbor, right? They're following those two great commandments. They love the Lord, their God. More and more, they love their neighbor as themselves. So if my church is 180 people this year and 150 people next year, The church down the road has gone from 200 to 2,000. But my people, the people I love, the people I'm associating with, they have a growing love for Jesus. They're showing repentance. They're devoted to the Word. They're interested in doctrine. They love God and love their neighbor. I would say this is a healthy church. I can be joyfully content in this church. I can commend this church to God. Whether it grows or not, that's in the Lord's hands as I preach the word, as I draw people to the gospel, this is what I'd expect. All right. This is the question you just ought to be saying again and again in your life, in your family, in your church, in all areas. What does the Bible say? Right? When it comes to what you can do as a church, what you should do as a church, what you must do as a church, just keep asking, what does the Bible say? If we could just get that into our way of thinking, whenever th- something comes up in life or in church, We're just going to go to the Word, plead with God through His Spirit to reveal us the truths of the Word. We'll have healthy churches.